Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Before I dismiss the children to Children's Church, um, how many of you are here last week? Okay, good. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I listened to the podcast, and there was something amazing that I missed. I mean, I heard it sounded great. Keith Kemper, who preached last week, did a backflip. And for those of us that weren't there, and for our children who are in children's church, I'm wondering, Keith, would you please come and repeat the feat? Oh, I pulled his knee. That's disappointing, because the kids all want to see a backflip, Keith. Come on. Is there anybody who will do a backflip for our children this morning? Cody Severson. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. We've got to make sure we get this on. All right, go. All right. Now, what's that? Yeah, kids, don't climb on the furniture. Now you kids can go. All right. And got to post that on the Internet. And there we go. Don't try that at home or in church. Next time, Keith, once you heal. Good. Okay. Uh, all right. I want to invite you now to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. That has nothing to do with anything we're talking about this morning. But I heard the podcast and I thought we had to recreate it somehow. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, if you've been with us throughout most of the year, we've been working through Hebrews and maybe you're just visiting with, with us this morning, but we are wrapping up Hebrews in the next next couple weeks here. And so we're here in chapter 13, and, and just for, for a recap, since it's been a couple weeks since, since we were here, I want us to, to catch us up to speed about, about what is specifically happening and what is specifically being talked about in these verses that, that we're going to look at this morning. And as we do so, I want to, to remind you, or if you're visiting with us, uh, to, that, that you know that we as a church at Berean take, take the Scripture very seriously. And we understand that this is God's word for us, that we, that we are, are meant to, to follow it and to, to model our lives after the things that God is teaching us in his word. And sometimes we come across things within Scripture that, that we may not like very much or may not sit very well with us. And yet it's our responsibility to, to not go along with just what we think feels right to us, but go along with what God's word says. And so we try to do that very well. And we don't do that perfectly by any means. Uh, as, as a pastor, as a church, we are constantly going back to Scripture to say, okay, where have we gotten it wrong? And how can we do this better? And so as we talk about some of these things, we're going to be talking about them in a way that hopefully is challenging, hopefully is encouraging, and hopefully is leading us more towards the kind of people that God desires us to be in the world. And so for the context, if you, if you remember back a few weeks ago, we looked at the end of chapter 12. And part of what 
our author was telling us here at the end of chapter 12 is that that we have been given a kingdom, that, that the work that Christ has done in the world on our behalf and on behalf of the world is providing us with a foundation that cannot be shaken. And that God is in control, that God is working. And as our response to that, he says in verse, in verse 28 and 29, he says, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And we talked about a couple weeks ago, we're going to be talking about again today, that these verses that we're going to look at, these are a response to what God has done for us. And they, when we live these things out, this is worship. This is the way in which we honor God through living out these things and, and wrestling with these passages and, and seeking to live these out more and more in our lives. And secondly, as we, we're going to begin in verse 3, but secondly, where we were two weeks ago, the starting points for, for the passages that we're going to, the verses that we're going to look at today are, uh, first of all, a, a challenge to, to be loving our brothers. He talks about this idea of brotherly love, and this would be brothers and sisters, that we as a community are loving one another and, and growing in our love for one another, and secondly, our love for those outside of our community. That he has this this word uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love, and then philozenos, love for the stranger, and this hospitality that we are to show for those outside of our community as well as those within the community. And so these are the first two words, the first two loves that we are directed to, and we're going to see this word, this love word show up one more time today. But I want us to, to just recap those things as we, as we jump in this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we open his word together. God, as we read your word together, as we as a community have gathered to worship and to praise you through, through our gathering and through our songs and through the giving of our offering and just our time together as your body, we ask that you be honored and glorified, that, that the things that are of your word, the things that are of you are the things that we may remember this morning and that we uh, may be changed by the things that you are doing uh, and speaking to us through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 13, we'll begin in verse 3. It says, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So there, as, as we're reading this, you might look at these few verses and say, Well, it seems like a lot of different ideas here, and, and how are they all related? And, and we'll talk about that a little bit um, but yeah, we really have we have three different concepts, three different ideas that we're going to be looking at, and and I think uh, to to be what to me what feels helpful is I as I have been looking at this passage, what feels like the the unifying piece besides what we already talked about that all of these things are are worship. To me, the unifying piece is the end of verse five and and verse six, in which he says, "Be content with what you have, because God has said." Never will I leave you, 
never will I forsake you. And then here, verse 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If you remember from a few weeks ago, as I already prefaced, this, this is an essential truth that the author of Hebrews is trying to get this congregation to understand and know. That God is faithful and that he has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And, and here you have this community in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of wrestling through what, is it, what does it look like for us to now be followers of this man, Jesus, who is, we believe is the Messiah is a promise that God is working and that God is faithful. And so so our response, it's not just as though God is faithful, and that's good to know, but our response is that we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That, that the, this congregation that we as Christians have a a foundation in which those words are true for us in every circumstance. That in the midst of what might make us afraid, in the midst of what might seem hard, in the midst of what might seem unsettled, again, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And this phrase is the impetus to the things that we looked at a couple weeks ago, the ability to love our brothers and to love the strangers. But it's also the impetus for these other verses that we're going to look at. So verse 3, let's look at it again. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, Paul, or not Paul, I don't believe it's Paul, but uh, our author here is writing to people who who are actually, some some of the members of this community have been put in prison. And then there are others who are receiving this letter who are not yet in prison. And the way the prison worked in the first century world is that, that oftentimes you were put in prison and, and you just, you didn't have like, a budget, you didn't have a job that you would do in prison, you would just, you would be there. And if you needed to eat, somebody outside of the prison would have to come to the prison and bring food for you. They didn't have, their their taxes didn't pay for prisoners to, to have food. And so you would have to have somebody from the community, one of, one of your family members, a friend, somebody that says, here is somebody that I know in prison and they're stuck in prison, and I'm going to take food to them. I'm going to provide for them. And you can imagine if you are have been put in prison because you are a Christian, and you're sitting in prison, the thought might be, or if you know somebody who's been put in prison because they're a Christian, your thought might be, I, if, I take, if I start taking them food, if I start providing for them and visiting them and taking care of them, there's a good chance that I may also end up in prison. And so there's, 
there, you have the sense that there's this fear of what might happen to me. And, and yet what, what our author is encouraging the people to do is, is don't forsake these people. Don't let them just be in prison and, and fend for themselves. But you show care for these people. These people who are, are so easily forgotten because the, we don't see them. And this is true for us today. Uh, I mean, we, I don't drive by prisons uh, on a regular basis. Some of you, some of you may. When you go over to, uh, onto the peninsula, you drive by the, the women's correctional facility and there's a sign, don't pick up hitchhikers. Um, but, but we don't, we don't see prisoners on a daily basis. And it's so easy to forget about the people who are in prison. And, and we as a church support uh, an organization called uh, PMA, Prison Ministry Association, in which people actually take, make efforts to go and visit prisoners and to, to give them opportunities to be growing and learning and, uh, and knowing scripture. And this is an important work that, that we are part of. Chris Nelson is a part of uh, that board. And, and this is an important work that we're doing, but, but for us as a community, to think about what does that look like? So often, I mean, we're, the, the context here is specifically for, for these Christians, part of the community, but so often, prisons are, are a mission field that are, that are open to hearing the gospel and open to people coming because they have been forgotten. They have been ignored. And there's a place where, where we as the church have an opportunity to come and say, hey, you, you are not forgotten by God. And so I want to encourage you to, to talk to Chris. Um, if this is something where you think, oh, yeah, that's something I haven't really even thought about. That's something I could be a part of. Um, we'd love for you to get connected with that. There are so many ways in which we can minister to those uh, from within our community who are imprisoned. But along with this is also those who are mistreated as if you, to, to remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. That, that their pain, their mistreatment is connected to your own suffering. And that what is happening to them is happening to you. And this is true, again, for, uh, for us as Christians. It can be so easy um, to, to see our world and to see our reality and see that as the only reality. But what we're being invited to here is to have eyes for those who are suffering I think our author is referencing back at least somewhat to, to Hebrews chapter 11 and the example of Moses. If you want to turn back, uh, the example of Moses, we looked at this a couple months ago. Verse 24, by faith of chapter 11, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward, looking ahead to his reward. 
By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. And this example that Moses gave the people of his, his ability to, to let go of his own privilege, let go of his own rights, and to see those around him suffering and to identify with them. And to say, because you suffer, I also suffer. Because you are hurting, I'm going to step outside of my own comfort. And this is Moses as in Pharaoh's palace. I mean, lots of comfort. And he gave it up for the sake of his people who were suffering. And we too are invited here when we see those suffering, when we see those who are mistreated, Maybe it's within the church. Maybe it's outside the church. Maybe it's our brothers and sisters. Maybe it's the strangers. When we see the suffering happening in our world, to not say, well, that's too bad for them and get on with our own lives. When we see suffering, to, to say, well, I'm sure they probably deserve it for you know, whatever reason they may deserve it. But to say, their suffering impacts me. And because they're suffering, I suffer too. That the work that God is doing in the world is one of reconciliation and one of healing and one of hope and one that is bringing life to the world. And it's not just that God desires reconciliation for some, but for all people. And that we as a church should have a heart for the suffering of those around us. And I think as we as we reflect on what does it mean to show sympathy uh, for others, despite the negative attention that it might draw to us, because or or the suffering that might come about in our own lives, we're drawn back to that verse six. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And these were words that these people would have have to have held on to as they were going to the prisons and caring for the people who were in prison, thinking, I may end up here if I do this. But we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. And I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And so I will go. And I will care for those who are mistreated. And I will care for those in prison, those who are suffering, those who are forgotten. I will choose to see the people who are ignored and forgotten. Because the Lord is my helper. So I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? And then verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral uh, we could spend we could spend our whole morning talking about these ideas but we don't have time for that but I want to just touch on a few key ideas in this verse first of all he's talking about he's talking about uh, your translation might say marriage must be respected by all marriage must be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure he's talking about this relationship between husbands and wives. And there's, a, there's an understanding within, within the Old Testament, within the New Testament, uh, that, that marriage is, is a covenant that is entered into between a man and a woman. 
And that this isn't just a social contract that two people are signing up for for sort of an indefinite period of time, and when one of them decides to call it off, then it's done. But that when people get married, when two people choose to commit themselves to one another, they're committing themselves to remain faithful to one another for life. And as we talk about this, I understand that as, as we are in uh, this congregation, uh, that, that the reality of our culture is that, that divorce exists. And that, that divorce is, is part of what has happened in our world and, and it's not desired. And yet it happens. And yet what we're talking about here is that, that this, this goal for marriage, this ideal for marriage is what God intends and what God hopes for and what he has created us for in our relationships with husbands and wives. And yet there's also a room, and we, we uh, could spend time talking about this, there's also room for God's grace to work in the midst of broken relationships. And that when divorce happens, that there can still be healing, and God is still faithful, even in the midst of our own broken relationships and the times where we uh, don't do it. And yet, as we're talking about this morning, I want us to, to hold and, and to remember that this is what God's intent is for marriage. The faithfulness of a covenant that is, that is held for, for life. And what, when our author is saying marriage should be honored by all, the marriage bed kept pure, he's calling them to, to a picture of marriage that, that two people are committed to one another above all others. That their relationship is so defined and, and so committed to one another that all of the distractions, all of, all of the other uh, influences and pulls and, and uh, draws uh, upon a marriage are, are kept out of what is sacred about this union. And this is true, uh, oftentimes the things that, that try to, to break up and to divide a marriage can be things uh, as, as maybe our own poor choices within a marriage. Sometimes those things are family members, relationships, uh, people outside who say, hey, this, this thing doesn't seem right for you anymore. And there are all kinds of uh, societal influences that try to, to break this commitment, this sacred commitment apart. And yet we're being told the marriage should be honored by all, the marriage bed kept pure. And, and as we look at this, I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. As I said, there's a lot of things that we could, we could dive into, but I think as, in just the short time that we have on, on this verse, I want us to, to have a picture for why this is so important to God. This, this idea of faithfulness within the marriage and, and why this is so critical to, to what he desires, especially for the church, for the Christian relationships. So in Ephesians chapter 5, he says in verse 31, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each, of, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife 
must respect her husband. And why I think this is so important for for Paul here and for our author of Hebrews and, and for God is that the intent for marriage, according to Paul here, is that our marriages as husband and wives are meant to be a reflection of God's love for his church. And that as we think about a picture of a marriage that is, that is, is faithful and respected and honored and kept pure, we have a picture of a God who is faithful and honors his people and desires their holiness. And that, that we as Christians who have entered into covenants of marriage, those of us that have, that our, our marriages are meant to be reflections of what God is, is saying to the world. That when God comes and he chooses us and says, I am committed to you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. That my love for you is not limited by anything that you can do. That I will always love you. That, that our marriages could possibly somehow be a picture of that love for our world. And this is the desire for God in our marriages. That, that we demonstrate to a world God's faithfulness through our own faithfulness to one another. And I don't know about you, but uh, as I look at my own marriage, my wife is here. Um, uh, you, I don't know, you step back and you say, well, that's, that's a big calling, right? <laughs> like, come on, like, we're not perfect. Um, and, and I know my own failings. Uh, and I think one of the hardest things to do in marriage and really in any relationship, but I think especially in marriage, uh, can be to say something like, uh, I messed up and I need forgiveness. Sometimes the hardest thing can can be to hear those words and to offer forgiveness. Uh, but oftentimes, it's that, that owning our own weaknesses before another person and our own imperfections. I mean, this is what Adam and Eve, all the way back in the garden, they eat the fruit and they realize they're naked and they hide from one another. And we see our own weaknesses and our own failings for one another. And we hide from one another. And yet the goal that God has for marriage is that these two people can stand before one another and not be ashamed. To see one another exposed and yet not feel shame and to accept one another as we are and that this is what God sees in us isn't it that he knows all of our faults all of the ways that we have uh, messed up and missed the mark and yet he comes to us and say says there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus 
that you are accepted as you are. And yet, in our relationships, uh, we are invited, and I think we need to hold on again to those words, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? Or woman. Uh, That when we have made mistakes, that we come to the other and we own it, trusting that God is our helper. And maybe the consequences to our mistakes might be very devastating for our relationship and very difficult for our relationship. And yet what God desires is not that we continue to hide from each other and pretend like those weaknesses don't exist, but that we come before one another and we find forgiveness through a long process maybe of healing, but that we come honestly trusting that God is working to bring healing. And the only way that we can do that, the only way that we can say those things is because we can also say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And to know that God is there with us in the midst of those relationships, in the midst of that desire for wholeness and purity within our relationship, that he is working to bring that about as well. And that he will be faithful no matter what. And then finally, keep your lives free from the love of money. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. As we close, I want to invite you to very quickly turn to Isaiah chapter 44. As we look at this this last passage. Isaiah chapter 44, we'll begin in verse 12. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning, and some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over, they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? So you have this passage in in Isaiah that uh, Isaiah is talking uh, on behalf of God, talking about 
the ridiculousness of creating idols, right? And he talks about, like, no one has the wisdom to say, like, half of this wood I, I burned in the fire and the other half I, I'm worshiping. And I'm looking to, uh, for, for sustenance. And, and, and this is the thing that I'm giving myself to. And we look at that from our, you know, modern 21st century Western mindset and like, oh, that's ridiculous dummies. Like, how could they possibly not recognize that? And yet, we look to all sorts of things to save us, don't we? It's our money. But it's, it's, it, maybe it's not money for you, but it's, it's what the money can bring you, right? Security, stuff, status. And we chase after these things and we worship these things and we love these things. And we devote ourselves to these things. And we look to these things as the things that give us identity and make us who we are. And we might not say, well, I don't love money. But we love the things that money brings us. And all of this stuff is just as intangible and just as worthless and meaningless. Like it's just stuff that's been created. It's just stuff that that somebody, maybe we didn't make it, but somebody out there made it, and it's just a thing. And yet we chase after it, and we love it, and we pursue it, and we desire it, and we structure our lives for those things so that we can have those things and do those things and, and, and live that way rather than pursuing a life that says, I'm going to give up those things so that I can care for somebody else. So that I can love my brother. So that I can love the stranger. So that I can love those in prison. And in fact, the word, the other time we see the word, we saw love a brother, love a stranger. That we got our uh, phylos word in here and it's, it's the love of money. And he says, don't do that one. Love your brother, love a stranger, don't love money. And the motivation is that we... Here you again you have this community that is is feels like it's on such shaky ground in the midst of their turmoil. And yet God is the foundation and, and He's saying, Don't look to this other stuff to be the foundation. Don't pursue it, don't chase after it, don't love it. Because it can't save. It's all idols. It's all just stuff. And it's not going to save you. It's not going to give your life the meaning that God can give. And as, I don't know about you, but as I uh, reflect on that, and I think of my own attachment to money and stuff and things and security, and uh, certainly requires me to say, um, well, the Lord is my helper. So I, I don't need to be afraid of letting go of these things. What can man do to me? I don't need to be attached. I don't need to rely on these things. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. Not, not these other things. The Lord is my helper. And as we close, just one... I don't know about you, but as I think about that last verse, we say with confidence. I need to say that 
again and again and again and again and again. And maybe after 20 or 30 times, I might be able to say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. But as I think about all of the things in my world, all like within, I mean, even these like the strangers and, their, and love for brothers and those who are forgotten and the mistreated and, and the prisoners and like my marriage and stuff, like all of those things are hard. And yet we are invited as a Christian community to say with confidence, to know, to be backed up by the truth of of the cross and what God has done for us and God's faithfulness to his people. That, That this is true. The Lord is our helper. The Lord is our helper. It's not the Lord can be sometimes. The Lord is our helper. And so... It's not, I don't have to be afraid. I will not be afraid. I will not. What can man do to me? What? what? Romans chapter 8. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Verse 37, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. He will be faithful no matter what. Nothing can separate you. And there's there's nothing more important than that. So as you pursue this life, may you say again and again and again and again today and tomorrow until you can say it with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's pray. God, we um, just ask that you remind us of those words this week. Remind us of your faithfulness to us. Remind us that you are a God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That when we come into moments where we are tempted to act hatefully to those around us, when we come into moments where we are tempted to pursue a love of money and the things that it can bring us, we come into our relationships, into our marriage, and the temptation to walk away from our commitments. And we come across those uh, who we would rather not think about. Give us uh, those words again. The Lord is my helper. May we know you as our helper so that we do not have to be afraid. Amen.